You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Would you guys join me in reading First uh, Judges 11, 1 through, 1 through 9? Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled with, from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. And after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against, and when the Ammonites, <laughs> and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives me over to them, I will be your head. And then this is 29 through 39. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them with a roar to the neighborhood of Meneth, twenty cities and as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughters came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take, my, take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. The point of the book of Judges, there's really two main themes, two main points that keep getting made over and over and over and over and over, and it's this. It's that you have a great need for a Savior, and you have a great Savior for your need. 
It's like two wings of an airplane. You have to have both in order for the thing to fly. So before we get into it, um, uh, here's how I want to start. Um, I don't know if you if you have if you're familiar with uh, this was a news story that broke last year. This is a, a story uh, about this guy named the Golden State Killer. Golden State Killer in the in the seventies and eighties, there was one man who was responsible for hundreds of burglaries, uh, over fifty rapes, fifty rapes. He, it escalated so all in California escalated into thirteen um, murders. And for decades, this guy eluded police. He, he was never caught until last year. They did this weird DNA thing. It's a cool story. But they arrested the 72-year-old. And um, they discovered one of the reasons why he was able to get away with it at the time, why he was so elusive, is that during a lot of the time when he was committing a lot of these crimes, he was um, an active uh, police officer. And so here's a, here's a guy who is you know, supposedly one of the good guys, and he turns out to be a monster. And then I don't know if you've seen the, um, uh, the you know, the Netflix uh, thing that was done recently about Ted Bundy. Here's this charming, attractive guy that's a law student. He's a political activist, and he goes on to murder 30 women. Turns out to be a monster. And then you think about Bill Cosby, like America's dad. It was like the most beloved family, wholesome family sitcom like ever. And then he turns out to be a monster. And you think about Matt Lauer, and he's you know the, the famous news anchor, and he's in everybody's living room, and he's just kind of the familiar, friendly face, and then the news kind of breaks on over 13 cases of sexual misconduct. Turns out he's a monster. And then you've got the new documentary just released about R. Kelly. Apparently he's a monster. You've got the new, like, super fresh documentary about Michael Jackson, and he's being accused of being a monster. And so the list goes on and on and on and on. Here's my point, is that the, all the perceived heroes turn out to be monsters. The reason why the book of Judges is so gory, it's so bizarre, it's so messed up, it's so shocking, is because it's just being honest and reflecting the world back to you. The reason why there's no good people in the story and in this book is because there's really no good people in the world that you woke up in this morning. The hero of the story that we just read, the hero, the judge, the savior of the people of Israel is a monster. He turns out to be the biggest, he's, he's the villain. The hero is the villain. It's this guy named Jephthah. It's a lot of consonants in one little name. <laughs> Jephthah. And um, he's the first, as far as I can tell, um, and his story is incredibly dark because he's the first Israelite documented in the Bible to perform a human sacrifice. He, he uh, executes, burns alive his one and only daughter, as we're going to get into it. And the way that he saves Israel, we're not going to get into the whole backstory, but it triggers this massive civil war between the people of Israel where it ends up with 42,000 Israelites killing each other. His life completely unravels. And I think as we get into this, you're going to see the reason why his life unravels is because he fails to grasp three really fundamental things. He fails to grasp God's love and God's authority and God's grace. And here's my thesis for you tonight. I've only got 28 minutes left to prove it. Don't keep track, though, of the time. But my thesis is, is that your life will unravel. Someone just click their timer. Your life will unravel as well if you fail to understand those three fundamental things. If you fail to grasp in the core of your being the love of God, the authority of God, and the grace of God, 
then your life will unravel. And I'll, I'm going to show you what I mean by that. So let's look through these three big kind of ideas one at a time. Love of God, the authority of God, grace of God. First, the love of God. To get into that, let's, let's look at uh, Jephthah for a second. In verses 1 through 3, you get Jephthah's backstory. You get his kind of origin story. And it tells you, um, I guess you could kind of read it between the lines. His mom and his dad were happily married. They had a few kids. I like to picture them as this kind of cute little suburban family in the little town of Gilead. But the, uh, the dad was a bit of a dirtbag. And at least on one occasion, he goes and he visits a prostitute. And he gets her pregnant. And she gives birth to a little boy named Jephthah. And Jephthah's dad had this brilliant idea of let's take the son of this prostitute in my little affair and let's bring him into the house with my kids and my wife and let's raise him there. That's what he did. And so Jephthah grew up in his home as the black sheep of his family. He was a living reminder of his dad's affair. In fact, look at, um, look at verse uh, 2. It says, And Gilead's wife also bore him other sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. He's a threat to their inheritance. So when they get old enough, they dr- his half-brothers drive him out of town. And because he has no family, he has no connections, he has no money, he goes off into the wilderness. And look at, look at verse 3. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. It's an amazing sentence. It's a little weird. Worth, worthless fellows is basically the Hebrew word for pirates, uh, uh, bandits. And when it says they went out with him, it means that they went on like raids together. They're like pillaging and terrorizing villages. And so this is basically, a, he basically becomes like a crime boss. He's like a mob kingpin in the mountains. He's, he's, the, he's the head of an organized crime ring in the mountains. Look at this. Well, so, so there's this other nation, the Ammonites. They start waging war against Israel because Jephthah has this reputation of making problems go away. They come to him and they want to hire him to fight the Ammonites. Look at verse 6. Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. Here's his response. Verse 7. Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? It's like, here's my, my entire life you've hated me and now... That I could be some abuse. You, you want my help now? But it's the promise of him being their head, their leader, that is really compelling to him. Because this is his opportunity, not just to get back in. This is his chance to be the man. I mean, if you think about it, for your entire life, if you have been neglected, you've been an outcast, you've been pushed to the margins of society, and this is his opportunity to be in the inner circle. This is his opportunity to be in the room where it happens. This is his opportunity to, to belong, to fit in, to have some significance, to have importance. And so he doesn't want to throw away a shot. So he, <laughs> so he agrees to go all in. He agrees, I will, I will do this. But here's, here's the point that I want you to make. Here's the point I want to make. Thanks, Emma. Is, um, he's controlled by his need for approval. You see this, he's, he, he is making decisions. His whole life is guided by this idea of I can finally be in the inner circle, I can finally belong, I can finally have the validation that I long for. This reminds me of, um, the. I don't know if you saw this uh, SNL digital short a couple of years ago. I shared this at my little breakout seminar at Winter Conference. If you're there, just close your ears for a second. But the, there's this digital short where Aziz Ansari is playing a guy that's about to take an Uber 
uh, take an Uber ride. Have you seen this little, this little clip? It's amazing. Right before he gets in this Uber, he realizes he has a 3.9, this is his phone, he has a 3.9 rating. And he's like, oh man, I've got to get a five-star rating if, if I'm going to bump my score. But right as the Uber driver pulls up, the Uber driver has the same realization. He's like, oh my goodness, I only have a 3.9 rating. I better get a five-star review for this ride. So both of them don't know that the other one is thinking this, and he gets in the car. And so they immediately are trying to impress each other, and they're both racially profiling each other to try to figure out which kind of music do you want to listen to, and they're choosing all this weird music, and then the, uh, the driver is like, hey, maybe I should offer him a mint. He's like, hey, do you want a mint? And Aziz is in the back, and he's like, yeah, awesome. And so he starts digging around in the console for like 10 minutes, and he eventually finds this old thing of mints that's been in there like for forever, and he passes them back, and it's this off-brand Russian mint thing called Mouth Help. And he opens up the Mouth Help, and it's all goopy and melty because it's been in there for years, and so Aziz takes it out, and he, he doesn't want to like not take it. So he eats it, and, he, and he's like, this is gross, and he spits it out. But then he notices that the driver sees him spit it out, so he panics. He's like, oh my gosh, I've got to recover. What do I do? What do I do? So he starts giving him a massage, and so he starts reaching up, and he's giving the driver a massage, but the, mas- the driver starts to panic. He's like, I can't receive a massage and not return the favor. So he reaches back, and he grabs Aziz's foot and pulls it up onto the console, takes off his shoe and takes off his sock and starts massaging his bare feet while he's driving, and while he's getting massaged, it's just like this amazing, it, it gets better. You've got to watch the clip. But here's the, here's the scene. I saw this, and I'm like, man... That, this isn't just a Jephthah thing. This isn't just a SNL Aziz thing. This is like a me thing. I, res- I resonate with that. Don't you resonate with that? Of like, man, almost every interaction I have all day long is me auditioning. It's me performing. I'm trying to get the five-star review. I'm trying to get the applause. I'm trying to get the validation. Every decision you make, my guess well, for most of us, the clothes we wear, the, the words we use, the hairstyles we go with the the pictures we post. There's an inner circle of people. There's a panel of judges we're trying to impress. There's a panel of judges that we're trying to get the applause for, of somebody to look at us and say, well done. You matter. You belong here. And if you're anything like me, man, it's just like exhausting. All day long, you're just like Aziz in the back seat of like, am I doing enough now? Should Should I step it up? Should I do something else? It's like you never really know if I'm doing enough. The reason why um, Jephthah is controlled by a need of approval, the reason why we're controlled by a need of approval, is because we've all failed to grasp the love of God. Here's what I mean. If you knew in your heart of hearts that you were unconditionally, endlessly, aggressively, recklessly loved, that you already have the approval of the only person in the universe that really matters, then you wouldn't have to manipulate and dance and do the song and dance for everybody to get, the, get you the five-star rating. You know in Christ, you already have the five-star rating. In Christ, God has already looked at you and said, well done, good and faithful servant. Because of what Christ has done, you have access to the love of God. It, this reminds me, I, heard this, I read this story. Um, in the 1920s, there was this farmer that bought this ranch in West Texas Last name was Yates, called Farmer Yates. Farmer Yates buys this ranch in West Texas, and he's poor, his family's poor, and they're just kind of eking out an existence, and you know, they're eating 
whatever, and they're just kind of scraping along, can barely pay the mortgage payments, and they're just kind of living out in West Texas. And, he, and one day he just has this kind of inkling, what if, you know, what if I drilled oil in the backyard? And so he, um, <laughs> I don't know what that was, but all right. So he starts drilling oil in the backyard, and he starts drilling and drilling, and all of a sudden there's this oil that explodes and starts spraying everywhere. And so he's like, oh my goodness. And so they, they, they build, he starts to build this drilling and barreling system. And by 1927, he was barreling 9,000 barrels of oil a day. By 1929, he had, he had uh, brought in 9 million barrels of oil. I mean, that's like rich beyond your wildest dreams rich. But here's the thing. All along, while he was eking out his existence, eating ramen, eating rice, it's right under his feet. It's there the whole time. He just hadn't tapped into it. So that, that's the picture of Jephthah. That's the picture of you and me. Of like, when we go through life and we're eking out this existence of we're manipulating people. I've got to get the right post with the right filter so I get the right amount of likes and the right amount of retweets and the right amount of comments and so I get the approval. I get the five-star rating and we're just... We're hungry and we're eking along, craving something when we're rich beyond our wildest dreams. We're just not tapping into it. The love of God is there for you in Christ and is right under your feet. And if you fail to grasp it like Jephthah, your life will unravel. That's the first thing. You've got to grasp the love of, the, the love of God. Secondly, your life will unravel like Jephthah's if you fail to grasp the authority of God. The authority of God. And by that, what I mean by that is... Um, that you recognize that God has the right to tell you to do whatever he wants you to do. He has the right to guide and direct your life simply by virtue of the fact that he's God and you're not. To, get, to recognize God's authority means to prioritize God and his word and his voice over and against every voice and every word that you hear. It kind of reminds me, um, I don't know if you've seen the TV show, The Great British Baking Show. <laughs> I've never seen it, but... I have seen the show called The Office, and um, if you have seen The Office, <laughs> then um, Ellie was in the back giving me thumbs down. Do you, I don't know if you're familiar with the episode, but there, if, if you're unfamiliar, it'll still make sense. There's, a, there's one episode when Michael and Dwight are driving around trying to, get Dunder, trying to get clients to return back to Dunder Mifflin, and they've rented a car, and they have a GPS system, and he's typed in the coordinates... And they get to this one spot where the GPS is saying, turn right, turn right. And Michael's like, we got to turn right. And Dwight's like, no, 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 no. It means go up and veer right. The road is veering right. And Michael's like, no, it is saying turn right. Dwight's like, no, veer right. I'm listening to the GPS. And he turns right. And, of course, he drives into a lake, Lake Scram. That would be an example. That's a bad example. But here, here's the example of Michael prioritizing the voice of the GPS over and against his own instincts and over and against the voice of all of his friends. That's what it means to grasp the authority of God. What you say matters over and against what I think and what anybody else thinks. And Jephthah fails to grasp it. Let me show you. He, so he has this chance. He has this opportunity to be the leader, to be on the inside. And he's like, all I need to do is now win this battle against the Ammonites. So he turns to God for help. And he says, okay, I've got to give God an incentive to make this thing happen. So look at verse uh, 30. He says, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into, the, into my hand, meaning if you will let me defeat them, then whatever comes from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. 
He is so desperate to win this war, he literally vows to make a human sacrifice. He says, when I go out, if you'll give, you'll give me victory over these people, when I get home, whoever comes out of the door to greet me and give me a hug, I will, offer, I will burn them alive as an offering to you, God. Now that's insane, but why in the world would he make that vow, especially when the Bible is explicit about this. This is a no-no in the Bible. Deuteronomy 18.10 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Pretty clear. Why would he do this? Well, a little backstory might be a little helpful. The Ammonites, the people that they're fighting against, the surrounding culture, they had this god that they worship called Molech. Molech. Molech? How are you say it? And what they would do to worship their God is that they would sacrifice their children. They would literally take their infants and put them on an altar and burn them alive to appease this God. Horrific. Apparently that was such a common thing in the culture. For Jephthah, it didn't even register that that is a crazy thing for an Israelite to do. He just thought everyone's doing it. Seems cool to me. And so he does it. This is, so so what, what you see with Jephthah is you see him creating a mixture of biblical spirituality and the culture's values. It's like the original mashup. This is like uh, Darth Vader spirituality, half human, half cyborg. And um, he takes a little bit of this, he takes a little bit of that, and says this is going to be my spirituality. And you see how he fails to grasp the authority of God over and against what anything else is going on in the culture. Instead he says... My spirituality is going to be like a little cocktail, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Bible, and a little bit of uh, whatever the culture says. Now, if you're a Christian, I think we should, we should have probably a little in-house family discussion for a second. So let me talk to the Christians in the room. If, if you're a Christian, which means you claim to submit and believe and, and, and uh, follow the authority of God, then you have to ask yourself the hard question. I have to ask myself the hard question. How much of your faith is a mixture? How much of your faith is a mashup? of, I want a little bit of the Bible, but I want a little bit of the culture as well. I mean, if you think about it, um, I think we, when it comes to our money, I think we're way more American than we are Christian. We have just um, downloaded and bought into the whole Western capitalistic consumerism of I need the latest gadget, I need the latest outfit, I need whatever the cool thing is, I need it, I need it, I need it. I think... Christians around the rest of the world would be shocked if they found out how much money we spend on ourselves. We're just American. We're just bought into the whole consumeristic mindset. I want some Bible, but yeah, give me the give me the world's view of money. Or we say, you know, give me the Bible, but give me the world's view of sex. And we have kind of Bible verses on our Instagram bio or Christ follower on our Instagram bio, and yet I think. We embrace a vision of sexuality that is 100% shaped by the culture. I mean, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's just normalized. The view of sexism is just everywhere. The Bible is explicit that sex is reserved in the context of marriage between a, a husband and wife. It doesn't get any more clear biblically. And yet we think, I'll take a little bit of Bible, but I'll, I'll let the culture shape my vision of sex and sexuality. Or we say, you know, I'll take a little bit of Bible, but I, uh, I want the American, I want the culture's view of success. I want ambition. 
I, I want to be known as being important. And so we download and we just, we just buy into the workaholism and the ambition that the culture is just, not just normalizing, but celebrating. And if the culture celebrates workaholism, then this means that you're either a workaholic or you're a workaholic in training right now. And all that goes with it in terms of normalizing cheating, just abusing the systems that we're in, normalizing, cutting corners. I, I honestly think as, as a Christian in 2019, one of the most radical things you can do, when people talk about being radical for Jesus, let's sell everything and let's move to the other side of the world and go to a village. That's okay, that's radical. But I think it's just as radical for you to protest the tidal wave of, of what worldly success is, is pouring down upon you. And, you. and you say, I will not let my schoolwork define me. I'm going to take a day and rest. I'm going to have boundaries. I'm going to be okay with B's and C's. In fact, rest in Jesus and find that godly to get a C on a test. But we don't, we don't want it. We want, the, we, want the, we want the mixture. I want Bible, but I want worldly view of success. I had this... Um, I had this heartbreaking conversation with a student last semester. Grew up in the church, came to UT, and um, started to walk away from his faith. And he was telling me why. He said, really the reason why, because I would look around and I would see Christians on campus um, living basically the same way that I was living. Meaning, and he said, you know, like, I love getting hammered, and I see all these Christians who love getting hammered. And it's kind of like, okay, well, we're all basically just doing what we want to do. Jesus really doesn't matter at the end of the day. And I think we're killing our witness to the rest of the world because we're just blending in the world and we don't even know it. And so my question, that I don't bring that up. If you're, if you're a Christian that loves to get hammered, I don't bring that up to scold you or to shame you. I am, I'm, I am asking the question, does it even concern you? My life is a, is a, is a mixture and a mashup and a contradiction as well. I'm not, I'm not, I'm in no uh, position of above you in this regard. It didn't concern Jephthah. He just blended into whatever the world was doing. And from our vantage point, it's like, this is crazy. From other people's vantage point, if they looked at us, they might think the same thing. Does it concern you? We fail to grasp the authority of God that because he's God, he has the right to say, this is how you live your life. So our lives unravel if we fail to grasp the love of God, if we fail to grasp the authority of God. But here's the last thing, and this is a big one. Our lives also unravel if we fail to grasp the grace of God. So let's keep going. What happens? Jephthah makes this vow. He says, God, if you give me victory, I will offer up a human to you. And in verse uh, 33, he goes into battle and just crushes it, dominates the Ammonites. And uh, he heads home and he's like, okay, God lived up to his end of the bargain. I need to live up to my end of the bargain. So whatever comes out of the door to greet me, I'm going to light on fire as an offering to God. And look at verse 34. His only daughter steps out of the house. And Jephthah's like, well, crap. That's not what I was expecting. But promise is a promise. I got to sacrifice you. And as the audience, we're looking at this story and we're like, no, you don't. You can stop here and say, I've made a huge mistake. In fact, maybe that was the reason why God had his daughter come out to greet him, to show, like, you can't kill your own daughter, you idiot. Like, this is a bad decision. This is not how God wants to be worshipped. But 
Jephthah foolishly follows through with his vow, and he gives her two months to prepare for her execution. And the last verse of this handout, verse 39, he burns her alive as an offering to the God of the Bible. Now, what's crazy about this is that he thought he was being obedient. He thought this is what God wanted. He thought, hey, I made this big promise to God. God came through with this big battle, and so I've got to make this big sacrifice. And what is tragic about the story is that it shows you in Jephthah's heart of hearts, he does not grasp that God is a God of grace. Deep down, he thinks God has to be bought off. You've got to offer God an incentive in order to bless you. God doesn't just bless you and love you and accept you just because. You've got to prove yourself. You've got to give him a reason. You've got to offer up something to him. You've got to, you've got to buy his favor from him. And it's so easy to read stories like this and think, man, people back then were superstitious and primitive and misguided. <laughs> well, don't be chronologically arrogant. We are no different than Jephthah, are we? I mean, how many times, I don't know, if you're anything like me, how many times have you, been, have you said to God or prayed, God, if you would just get me through the semester, I promise, I will, whatever, I'll stop partying, I'll, I'll stop looking at porn, I'll start reading my Bible, I'll start going to church. If you would just get me out of this bad situation, if you would give me the A on this test, whatever, I promise, I'll, I'll start taking my faith more seriously, I'll start, I'll start reading the Bible, I'll, really, I'll go to a small group, I'll do something. Deep down, we make these vows because we think uh, God needs a reason to love us. He needs a reason to bless us. Sometimes when I sit down with students, if, if, uh, if I feel like I get to know you well enough and we're, we're, we're at, uh, you know, we have enough trust established and we're talking about important things, uh, it's a common question for me to ask students. Um, if, if you were to describe the expression of God's face right now when he thinks about you personally. Like, think about your eyes, you know, close your eyes, think about whatever God's face might look like, the expression on his face. When he thinks about you right now, describe to me the expression on his face. 95% of the time, I get the same answer, which is, well, it's this look that I know God loves me. He's my father, I know he loves me, but it's this look of kind of disappointment. This look of that he's kind of lost confidence in me. And I say, okay, makes sense. So what do you think would have to happen in order for his face to turn into a face of delight, or just a face of pure joy, a, a face where he's just, he just loves looking at you, loves thinking about you? And the answer that I get is, well, I, I, I think I would have to start taking my faith seriously. I'd have to stop doing X, Y, and Z. I'd have to start doing X, Y, and Z. And at that point, the students kind of tip their hand. They've kind of showed their cards. Because they've said... Deep down, what I really think is that God's feelings towards me are conditional on my behavior. He needs a reason in order to love me. He needs a reason to bless me. And it just shows we don't understand that he's a God of grace. We really do think he has to be bought. We have to prove ourselves. How can God be gracious to people like you and me, people that don't really grasp his love, his authority, or his grace. How can he be gracious to people that don't understand his grace? Here's why. It's because centuries after this story, there was another sacrifice. There was another only child that went to the altar. God's one and only son went to the altar, and he gets crushed on the cross. 
All of God's disappointment, all of God's wrath, all of God's fury gets poured out upon him so that you and I can have the perpetual smile of God. This is the one sacrifice that earns God's favor for you forever. Earns his favor forever. But here's the secret. To tap into that, to tap into the oil underneath your feet, as it were, you have to admit that you're, the, you're a Jephthah. This is the secret. This is the hard part. This is the hard part of swallowing the pill, of you having to recognize and admit to yourself, to God, and to other people, I don't grasp your love, I don't care about your authority, and I don't understand your grace. We have treated God like the people of Israel treated Jephthah. We just drove him out of our lives. We wanted nothing to do with you. And what has this God done? He has come after us. We think we're the good guys in the story. We think we're the good guys of our story. The Bible actually says we're the monsters. The gospel won't make any sense to you unless you recognize, A, that you're a monster, but B, God recklessly forgives and is gracious to monsters like you and me. And if you, if you can swallow two, those two pills, as it were, the two wings of the airplane, if you can bring that into your heart of heart, that's how you tap into the oil. That's how you are rich beyond your wildest dreams because you no longer have to beat yourself up for your sin because Jesus was beat up on the cross for you. You no longer have to purchase God's favor with your efforts and with your hard work because God's favor was purchased for you by Jesus. You no longer have to work for God's delight It was secured for you by Jesus. Everything that is available to you in Christ is available for free. And it's right under your feet. But you have to admit that you're the Jephthah of the story. (laughs) The invitation for you tonight is to look at the cross. Because that's that's the only place where you will find the love of God and see the authority of God and experience the grace of God. It's only at the cross that you see those two things come together that you have a great need for your Savior, and you have a great Savior for your need. That's the invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, would you be kind to open up our eyes and to give us the humility to see ourselves rightly, people that don't understand your love and don't submit to your authority and don't appreciate your grace. And I pray that you would transform us into people that drink deeply of your love and love to submit to your authority and rest in your grace for us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.